Take it to the limit. Take it to the limit. One more time. Show me a sign. Take it to the limit. One more time. Okay, it's going? Good. I don't have my computer right now, so I gotta go by faith that I'm broadcasting. I'm having mineral water right now. Very good. Alright, first of all, thank you to everybody who has said log off to me when I've posted today, this week, but you can stop. I mean, if you want to keep doing it as a bit, that's fine. Don't do it when I'm replying to someone because it's someone else's mentions and they don't need them clogged. I said that at the time because I needed to take, like, you know, I, what I felt was radical action to, to refocus myself. But I've spent enough time this week really applying that reasoning to the project to the point where if I post a couple times a day, that's fine, okay? And I have not been posting more than, like, twice a day. And I've been spending maybe an hour daily on Twitter, which is a huge difference from my uh, my regular uh, diet of online. And since I have to do online to a degree for the show, I'm not going to totally log off. So it's about finding a balance. I, I, no, it's not a slippery slope. See, that's the thing. The slippery slope thing... That's when you aren't self-motivated. That's when you're. That's when you're like slapping Nick, uh, Nicorette patches on to avoid smoking. Uh, in fact, like making extreme demands of yourself like that is a sign that you don't have a healthy relationship with the thing in question. Uh, I I feel like I have a healthier relationship, and therefore I'm fine. So, if you see me posting a ton, that's not great. But I don't think that'll happen. So, just basically, so that like I, I can reply to a friend of mine. And not have to worry that 15 people are going to be in their mentions saying log off, which is just going to annoy them. I want to be able to talk to people who I do have, like, actual relationships with, even if they're digital. If it contradicts what I said last time, well, I celebrate myself and I sing myself. I contain multitudes. So, but thank you for your concern. Uh... Progress, I assure you, is being made, and I'm very excited about it. But I'm not just writing the book all day. That would be insane. I have other things to do. I have actually a number of projects now that are all erupting at once. So the progress is being made. So this is the first of what will now hopefully be a weekly Friday vibe stream where I will interact with the chat, talk about stuff, I've talked to Chris about maybe having guests, if he can help me with that, including him, like talking to Chris, and I love talking to Chris. So that'll be, try to do that every Friday. And now, starting next Wednesday, will be another stream about a book. I have said Black Reconstruction, but I thought about it. I really think, like, considering where, where it started with the, the white book, I think really the most, the thing that makes sense next in terms of, like, reducing... Uh, would be the Foner Reconstruction book. So uh, Eric Foner's Reconstruction, The Unfinished American Revolution. Uh, we're gonna, I'll talk about the first chapter, since it's only it's Friday and that'll be next Wednesday already. Talk about the first chapter of Foner's, Foner, not Foner, I'm sure he got that a lot growing up. Uh, Eric Bone Bones, 
reconstruction. So we'll do the first, I'm not going to do a blue dot. I think we'll do black reconstruction after this one. I am doing a racism. I'm doing an imperialism. But the thing about Fauner's book is that it covers a longer period of time. And it is more, uh, it's, it's just got a, a broader sweep. And like, I feel like you go from white, which is the whole Gilded Age from the end of the Civil War until the uh, election of McKinley. Then you do Fauner, which is the whole of like Reconstruction from an academic perspective. And then you do Du, uh, du Bois's Black Reconstruction. That feels like, uh, that makes sense to me as like a, uh, a vector for acquiring uh, like the correct historical uh, framework for, for building out from there. And then after that, we'll see. But those are going to be the next three or the next two, starting with first chapter of Foner on Wednesday. You don't have to have read it, obviously. I'm not just going to talk about what's in there. It'll be a jumping off point. But that'll be that. And then that's going to be the two. That's it, though. We're not, I'm going to try not to do any other ones. If something really gets me, I'll write it down. I'm not going to, not going to just come on here to yell about it. I will post, after this, I'll post a tweet saying what uh, next week's book club will be. Please don't respond. Log off to that. But what are you guys up to? What's going on with you hepcats and kittens? Someone's asking, have I seen Babylon Berlin? It's very much up my alley. I should watch it at some point. I haven't seen it yet, though. I mean, because, I mean, if I'm Mr. Counterfactual now, if I'm looking backward now in this period of stasis, for me anyway, you know, politically, you want to talk Lincoln assassination, another, the other big one, really, that comes to mind immediately after that is the, un, the failed German Revolution. So that'll be, I should take a look at it. Oh man, I've not seen the Stand remake. Uh, it, I've seen some clips from some people who've watched it. I've noticed no one's talking about it. It looks absolutely terrible. Uh, I mean, and, and it's not like the 94 one's that good, but it makes the 94 one look like the Kubrick shine. It, it basically makes this this stand makes the 94 st that this stand is to the Steven Weber. Um, cable shining as the 94 stand is to Kubrick shining. Yes, Lex G is really where I've been finding out. Don't don't bother the poor man, but the, he's my favorite. Uh, uh, he will not he will not allow you to to uh, to follow him anyway. He's locked. Uh, but it looks absolutely terrible, and it really does it does make it hard not to feel like. Mass market, mass market entertainment is getting worse. And I know that that is a thing that people resist saying because it makes you sound like an old man yelling at a cloud. And there is always uh, an emotional element to that that is reducible really to just, you know, things are better when you're younger than when you're older when it comes to culture and a bunch of other stuff. But man, uh, just like everything about it just seems so uh, inert. And that's too bad because I love the stand. I mean, that I read. I read when I was a kid. I read the the like the thousand page version with all the stuff that got cut out of the original release that obviously probably should have been cut when like uh, 
King was at his most gacked when he was Mr. Fucking Yayo uh, and just writing 10,000 uh, words a, a, a day. But, man, the new one looks bad. I'm hearing that the Trash Can Man, played by Ezra Miller, is thermonuclearly terrible. Uh, so, why is Topo Chico bad for you? It's mineral water. What are you talking about? Why, what are you, why are you people trying to do for me? What are you trying to do to me? What's in here? There's calcium. Is that bad? So what's wrong with it? Kidney stones? Oh, I'll be fine. Now, I'm trying to cut back on, uh, on booze in general. Uh, Dr. Sleep was a very not a good book and a worse movie and it's it's very funny because it so clearly exists for spite uh, because the whole reason that Stephen King hated Kubrick Shining is because Jack Torrance was him and Kubrick's version of Jack Torrance is not redeemable he's not he's not a man who had some weakness and slipped when and and you know gave into his worst instincts he is a, he was a, a he was a vessel for evil and so it's not surprising at all that king hated that because it was essentially a two hour long uh <laughs> a dissection of his darkest impulses and a essentialization of them and that's fine. What it's, it's to be expected, but his his thirty year long attempt to essentially erase the Kubrick movie from existence first by making that awful TNT version, and then doing the terrible uh, sequel, which was then made into a somehow worse movie. Although I have to say, it's very funny to me that he wrote the book to help expurgate the movie from existence and reaffirm the primacy of the original novel and as a result dr sleep is a sequel to the book not the movie and so that means that dick halloran didn't die uh and also uh the overlook blew up and so at the end of the movie when they when in the end of the the book dr sleep when they go to the overlook it's just a big field but the movie is a sequel to shining the movie and it when they go back to overlook it's still there that's uh, that's very ironic. Did I not send a a a a a, a, a tweet a tweet a tweet a tweet about the stream? I thought I did. I don't have my computer. I can't leave this. I thought I sent a. I, I'm sorry. I don't have my Twitter. My 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 computer right now is is down. I did. Okay, good.
Oh man, the shining sequence in Ready Player One. Spielberg is a demon. I mean, he's incredibly talented. But he is a fucking demon. Allegedly. Contrasting him with Cameron, I think, really shows you that, that like Spielberg is, is terrifyingly narcissistic. And everything that he does comes from that. Uh, I kind of honestly sometimes think that his most autobiographical movie aren't any of the ones about divorce and the suburbs. It's Temple of Doom. When you can think about who he pals around with in, in Hollywood, who else uh, it makes up the DreamWorks team. Uh, <laughs> it makes you think that, like, that was actually the movie about his wife. The, the, uh, for the idea that women are to keep around as arm candy but that they're not there to have any kind of emotional relationship with uh real real time is with the bros including the small the small friends and sometimes that uh fun involves uh maybe in temple underground where you do fun things and you chill out with your dudes and your bros And how the mark of sophistication is the willingness to eat things and perform rites, for example, that maybe normal people would find uh, horrifying. Allegedly. I'm just saying Spielberg gives me the fucking creeps. As a person. He's very talented. And it's interesting contrasting him with Cameron, who probably is a bigger jerk to work with than Spielberg, but clearly is not part of the uh, part of the demonic set in Hollywood. I'm not against hanging out with the boys, but you know, you need a uh, you need an integrated self, and I don't think he ever got one of those. I think Spielberg is very talented. I, Spielberg is able to uh, to create investment in uh, characters visually, which is very difficult. He's able to make you identify with a character and then create stakes for that character's actions that compel you to keep watching just, just with depictions of them, which is a tough thing to do. Oh yeah, the Lincoln movie. I loved the Lincoln movie when I saw it. I gave it like four and a half stars on Letterboxd if anyone wants to go back and look at it. The politics of it are genuinely terrible. I mean, like all the po Spielberg's politics, overt politics as opposed to the meta-politics that he's dealing with. The, uh, the actual um, overt politics of Spielberg's movies, and this is one of the things that makes you know that he is, you know, a hollow man, is, is the, sort of, the sort of soulless liberalism that it's horrifying to imagine somebody investing that much uh, energy in depicting. Because it's so just the background radiation of life. Why would you feel the need to do that? Why would you feel the need to assert in this culture the need that, that like, compromise is the most important thing? It's like, what the fuck? 
especially since the context doesn't even make sense. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was not compromising with anybody. They were, they were burning and destroying half of the goddamn country in the middle of all those debates about the 13th Amendment. And you're supposed to side with Lincoln over Stevens uh, it, it, when they're discussing plans for the South. And Stevens is talking about de, uh, just uh, expropriating the entire planter class and redistributing their, uh, their land. And Lincoln's like, oh, you doofball. As if what we got instead is so manifestly better than that would have been. But honestly, I feel like the real slander, if there is one, is that I don't think Lincoln, I think Lincoln was, would have pursued a course closer to what Stevens was proposing than to what we fucking got from Johnson, which is one of the reasons I want to really explore the concept of a counterfactual, non-assassinated Lincoln reconstruction. But the thing that makes that movie good is, one, the actual storytelling visually is compelling. Like when, when they're doing the vote on the 13th Amendment, and then the bells chime, it's, it's, I, I teared up. And of course, the performances are amazing. And yeah, Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis is the definitive Lincoln. And uh, those, those elements are all great, but they're in the service of this soulless entity. And that's the, Spiel, that's the thing with Spielberg, is that there is a hole there. There is a big, gaping hole. And the more he, the more he's able to hide it, the more he's able to elide it, the, the more sort of purely pleasurable his movies are, like Jaws. But where he, like, reflects it, like Lincoln, like, like his more overtly political movies that he's done recently, like uh, The Post and stuff, you see that hole, and it's like, it's a little creepy. Jaws isn't soulless. Of course Jaws isn't soulless, because he's not showing you his hole. He's not, he's not putting a flashlight in his hole. And you can thank Carl Gottlieb and... And, and fucking Dreyfus. Like, these are collaborative processes. It's not just the director. Wow, like Spiel, uh, E.T., Jurassic Park. Fantastic. I gotta rewatch Close Encounters. It's been a long time. I don't think Lincoln was gay. He probably did gay shit, though, with, like, Joshua Speed. He probably did some gay shit. But I think gay shit was pretty common among his class and time, really. Because one thing to remember is that guys didn't get... Guys, got, guys in like the aspiring classes in the 19th century got married late. They did not get married in their early 20s. They got married often in their 30s. What were the hell were they doing during the height of their, uh, their like, essential drive? They were probably doing, you know, obviously... There was a lot of prostitution, but also there was some pro time. But I don't think that he was like, I think, I think he, he, I think it was more fluid in general. Like talking about gayness before like the modern era is kind of uh, a misapplication of terms anyway. Buchanan, I think, was like exclusively for the dudes. Buchanan was a guy who you would, because the guy, his, uh, the big reason for that, the big reason I think that is because of his close, intimate friendship with another politician of the era, another doe-face named, uh, who was briefly vice president, although he died before he could get sworn in, of malaria, I believe, in Cuba, William Rufus Devane King, who was known in Washington for his flamboyant attire and uh, affect, uh, and I believe Andrew Jackson called the two of them Aunt Fanny and Miss Nancy or something like that, I can't remember. 
I got to rewatch The Abyss. That's the Cameron movie I'm probably least familiar with. I saw it as a kid, and I haven't think I've rewatched it in a long time. Pence got fired. Got Pence got hired by the. Um, someone says Pence got hired by the. Um, Heritage Foundation. He's also probably. He's. I heard he was doing a podcast, uh, which is probably from the Heritage Foundation, which uh, is very funny because at first you think this guy is a charisma zero. Why would anyone listen to that? But he actually got his start after a failed political bid in talk radio which is kind of amazing. And it really does tell you how uh, Indiana, it really is the blandest place on earth. That Mike Pence was like the Rush Limbaugh of Indiana. But, I, I, but he had to go to the Heritage Foundation because I can't think of a less popular politician right now in America, in America than Mike Pence. Not necessarily like he's the most hated, like emotion, like there's a lot of emotional investment by it, but clearly any of the real Trump people don't like him. They feel like he did show himself to be a pussy, as Trump told, said to him. Uh, and then he's still too creepy and, and socially conservative, like overtly socially conservative, for to become a resistance hero. Like, I joked that he was, like, a leader for... He's more likely to be the Democratic nominee for president than a Republican nominee for president. And, I mean, obviously, I think at this point, Democrats like him more than Republicans, but they still don't really like him. He's still creepy. He's still... Ugh. So I can't think of anybody with less of a political future, which is kind of amazing, because you'd assume that, you know, the vice president is, is, is well-positioned, but I think we've seen the last of him. Obviously, there's no way of knowing, but I think we might have seen the last of him in elected office. He's just going to shrivel into a little prune in his little heritage department sinecure. The idea of Trump at a think tank would be pretty funny. As long as they gave him a Twitter account. They might... I'm wondering if they're going to give him back his Twitter account at some point because he was just such a big draw. But honestly, the longer he's away, the more irrelevant he feels. Doesn't it feel... Obviously, this is all subjective. But doesn't it feel just like, oh, we really did kind of conjure him into being. And, like, we made him the overruling, like, mind in the country because we needed him. And then as soon as the tensions that he provoked became unsustainable, shy of an actual military confrontation that none of us are uh, ready for, we just collectively, like, popped him and, and sent him off, like, like uh, fucking Witches of Eastwick. We'll see, though. We'll see. Yeah, it's like he's a tulpa we created like on an acid trip, and now it's like we're eating orange slices, and he's just fading into the into nothing. Any movies I'm excited for this year? Uh, all the big ones. I, I am interested. Somebody asked about that 
the Fred Hampton movie. I don't think it's going to be good or anything, but I am interested in seeing it. It'll be an interesting document of the time. I mean, I think it'll be honestly very interesting, even if it's terrible. You know, how, how we're thinking about stuff like the Black Panthers in the current moment when, you know, like the black struggle movement has reemerged as sort of the sine qua non with the left, but it's also at the same time being co-opted into like a justification for neoliberalism. Like those two things are happening at the same time. And that's why the argument about that is stupid because they're both happening. It depends on which end of the fucking thing you're looking, which side of the kaleidoscope you're looking through. Uh, and apparently it's got squibs, so I will see it. Uh, also, I'm a chump. King Kong versus Godzilla. I'm sorry. I don't care. I don't even care that it's going to be on the small screen. They're fighting. It looks cool. Uh, I liked, I'll, I'll admit that I liked the dour, uh, grimdark Godzilla from 2014 that a lot of people hate. Just because they don't give you a lot of Godzilla, and I think that is rare in blockbuster filmmaking now. Uh, and I liked Kong Skull Island. So, we'll go. And of course, who, of course, number one, with a bullet, although we'll see if they delay it again, if movie theaters are back by the fall, Ghostbusters Afterlife, so that I can, in fact, gaze into the abyss that is Muncher. I must see the Muncher with my own eyes. I must see, look into the mirror myself and see that, the, 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 the joyless subject whose only uh, desire is consumption, but for whom consumption is misery. Dune, I gotta say, I did not like the trailer. I've gotten over Villain the Wave at this point, and it's just, why is everything gotta be all, why can't, why isn't there any fucking color anymore? So I sound like a grandpa, but I, not everything, where's the color? I will see that, though. I saw Buck Boy. I did not like it, I gotta say. I, I got what it was going for, I think, but it didn't really hit me. Yes, uh, I've heard about the uh, the creation of New Detroit in Nevada, how there's going to be actual corporate uh, company towns. I mean, it's that's the trajectory we're on. It was going to happen at some point, and now it's just happening. I mean, that's really a lot. So much of the anxiety of the moment is that shit that we all knew one way or another was coming and knew would be bad when it got here is happening and we have no way, we can't imagine a way to stop it or change the trajectory, of course it's freaking us out. And yeah, I mean, this is just the next step of a process that's already happening in most of our big cities, especially any of the ones that have a lot of tech money in them. I mean, Detroit itself literally already is new Detroit. Downtown Detroit has been a private fiefdom of, of Dan Gilbert's uh, uh, Quicken Loans, I think, for years now. They, have, they run their own, they run this, the security, they run the infrastructure.
No, Dan Gilbert is Cleveland. He's from Cleveland and he owns the Browns, but but he also owns the middle of downtown Detroit. I did not make that up. It's not. No, it's it's Detroit. I love being incorrectly corrected. It's adorable. I love how Detroit is the is the center of uh, of pizza chains. The hometown of Little Caesars and Domino's. I believe like the owners of both of those have swapped off ownership of the different sports teams over the years too. And I love the fact that uh, Monahan, the guy who founded Domino's, is like an Opus Dei psycho Catholic who founded his own Catholic planned community and college in Florida called Ave Maria. And you'd, be, you'd think that there'd be more of awareness that Detroit has its own pizza style, especially since Pizza Hut, ironically the one that's not from Detroit, has sort of, as its baseline pizza, one that's most reminiscent of a Detroit-style pizza. I, will, I don't know if I've said this on the stream before, but when I was a kid in a small, like a 30,000 person town in Wisconsin, like an hour away from Milwaukee, like not, not a suburb, like, like a little, uh, like a, a, a medium sized town, uh, Pizza Hut in like the 80s and 90s, that was the nicest restaurant uh, I went to as a kid. And not because we were poor, we were like, you know, decently middle class in income it's because that's all that's, that was there weren't nice restaurants in 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 like large parts of this country back then so the things that i associated high di fine dining with like low lighting leather at banquettes uh the pebbled glass or pebbled plastic cups that kind of looked like they were glass and of course the buffet those were all i those were all from um from Pizza Hut. I think though that that I think that that type of fancy dining is no longer. I mean, I think that kind of decor is not no longer what people think of when they think of like nice restaurant. I think now, uh, now it's lighter. It's like brighter. That was like kind of a mid-century thing. Like you watch uh, Mad Men. Everybody is, you know, smoking cigarettes and shit. The other nice, kind of nice place we had just because it was dark was we had a, the closest thing to a restaurant we had was a place called Friar Tucks. And I think there were like maybe one or two other locations in the area, but it, it might have been the only one. And it was, 
it looked outside it, it looked like a fake little medieval uh building and it had very narrow sort of arrow slit windows and the waitresses all wore very very short uh monk frocks with like a cord belts and they made real and they sold burgers and stuff people are talking about stop getting kicked off letterbox i have to say I, I got on Letterboxd a while ago. I enjoyed it. I'm still on there. I you know I basically, if I remember to if I remember to, to put one in, I will post one. I, I'm not like tracking obsessively every movie I put in there anymore. But uh, it's been fascinating watching that place be get the neuroses of social media sites as people have like as essentially people are moving like locusts from one social media site to another. And generating this cloud of neurotic energy about culture and politics, mostly, in order to get frisian from their interaction with the internet. And then a while, it after a while, it kind of like peters out, and they lose the ability to to get that hit, and so they have to move on. They're like the fucking aliens in Independence Day, uh, and, or otherwise known as like the human race. And now they're on Letterbox, and so now Letterbox is the new Tumblr slash Twitter where everybody can just, oh, now we can all uh, have struggle sessions every day about these specific films, no matter how old they are, and uh, the way people respond to them. Fun. Good stuff. Definite sign of a healthy culture. Oh, God, Jimmy's Grotto in Waukesha. The home of the Panzerata which is like a gut bomb uh, calzone. I only went there a few times. It's too heavy. But yeah, the fact that Stav got fucking banned for doing some joke, for objectifying people, film is objectification by definition. And it, I do disagree, though. A lot of people are saying like that these Puritans who are going on there to conduct witch trials about problematic content and problematic ways to view films they say, don't they get that film is for perverts, that film is about, you know, desire and, and all that? No, I think at some point they get it. It's just that's what turns them on. What turns them on, as much as, you know, uh, 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 like Brian De Palma is turned on by voyeuristic, uh, uh, the, the voyeuristic male gaze, and as much as film is about the, the male gaze, for these people who, who are on there now, Getting his getting very upset about that, and and uh, and essentially creating like lists of of proscribed entertainments. That's for them their perverted pleasure. That's their uh, libidinal uh, in, indulgence. So essentially, they're have like film is voyeurism, and then there's this meta voyeurism where you're not necessarily even looking at the movie. You're looking at who made the movie and who watched the movie. And that's where you get off, on judging them. So it's all, it's still perverse. It's not like these people aren't perverts. They're just as perverted as the real pervs. It's just that now they're in there too. And just, and that, the problem though is that when that becomes the dynamic, uh, it it has to escalate the conflict until the, the underlying uh, terrain is destroyed. 
people got mad at me for for not liking Knives Out. I don't get that. I mean, it's really not the politics. I just said that. There's a weird thing people do where they say like, you guys talk too much about movies. You only look at them through a political lens. Well, I don't. But when I talk about it on my political comedy show, I'm probably going to talk about the politics. Why else would I be talking about a movie if I wasn't going to put it through a political lens? That's the whole, that's the frame of reference for why we talk about everything. That doesn't mean that's the only way to enjoy a movie. It's the only thing about a movie to enjoy. It's one element that you pull out and talk about. It's not the only, I mean, one of the problems we have is so many people think that politics is the only lens to look through things and also that the if you say one thing about a movie if you express one opinion online it is a consecrated uh totality of your beliefs about it but i was put off by the politics of, of uh knives out but even if you cut out the the alt-right kid thing there's there's nothing there that i enjoyed at all and so then, but if we're talking on our politics podcast about why it's bad, I'll bring that up. But there's plenty of other things about it that it, I did not like. Oh, Christopher Plummer died? R.I.P. to a real one. I actually, people say, what about Culver's? There wasn't a Culver's in Manor to Walk when I was growing up there. I didn't have Culver's until I moved to the Milwaukee area. There might be one there now, but there was not when I was a kid. Uh, what else didn't I like about Knives Out? The structure of it, I, I mean, I like those, I, I, well, for one thing, I don't really like those kind of movies. I'm not a big fan of the Agatha Christie contact, the, 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 set, the concept. Like the Agatha Christie whodunit thing, it's fine, but it's not something I seek out. So that, it's already not going to grab me on that respect. And then the way they did it, also, uh, clever, I guess, but not engaging. What would I talk to Review Bra about? It is interesting, though, seeing regional... You can really trace uh, the, the pattern of, um, of retirement migration, like internal retirement migration of American populations by the way that regional chains uh, move around. Like, there's a Culver's in, I believe, there's Culver's in Florida, and there's Culver's in Arizona now, because that's where Wisconsinites move when they get old, and they want their food. They want their familiar foodstuffs. Do people, I can't believe it either, but people do, actually, no. Yes, people retire to Arizona, and if I was going to do that, if I was one of those people... I would absolutely pick Arizona over Florida. To me, that is not a contest. I mean, yes, the ocean is nice, but 
If I move into the water, I would move to the Pacific. And also, the fucking humidity and the giant bugs and everything. The desert is is a, is a transcendent place, or can be. And uh, so I can see I can see the the appeal of Arizona. But neither of them are like places I would want to move. I mean, people move there because you get to live the life of a retiree, which is like this frictionless convenience festival. And that's terrible for your brain. It lobotomizes your spiritual sense. I didn't see Jodorowsky's Dune because I don't. I've never been a Dune guy. It's not really my deal. Uh, and I, I saw the Lynch Dune a couple years ago, and it was uh, not good. I mean, I, I I don't think it was good. At least, but it was visually interesting, which is more to say than you can say for the new one. At least from what I saw in the trailers. Uh, and I've seen some Jodorowsky movies, but I bet that would have sucked too. I, I bet that it had actually made that movie, it would not have been good. Squibs are not the only thing I care about in movies. But the lack of them is just something that that saddens me because you're seeing, as I've talked about, just the hyper the hyper uh, elimination of, of meaningful uh, artistic elements within films. Like there are fewer and fewer places where people can make decisions in the interest of quality. They can only make it in the interest of the budget. Someone was uh, saying that squibs aren't just, like, the the the, the uh, death of squibs isn't just about money, it's about safety. But if those two things were in conflict, what do you think would win? I mean, it's only coincidentally safer. And that still doesn't mean that you should get rid of them completely. I think uh, Chris pointed this out. Uh... You don't have to make every fucking... If you're making a movie with a bunch of shooting, you don't have to have everything be a squib. You can have plenty of things where giants just fall over with no blood whatsoever. But when you do show some blood, show some real fucking blood. Instead of, okay, everybody's going to have a bullet hit, but it's going to be CGI. Like that's a perfect that's a perfect example. Uh, Chris said, like Commando. When, in the end of Commando, when he shoots everybody on that island, most of them do not have squibs; they just fall over. But a few shots, you get an in cut, you get a in frame, you get a cut to a close up, and then there's some squibs. In a modern version, if they did Commando again, every single person who got shot would get a big CGI blood splatter. That's worse. That's worse. 
I saw Wake and Fright. I just saw it a few months ago. It's a great. It's a horror. It's called a horror movie, and the horror prince. The horror uh, question that is asked, because you know, all horror movies are premised on what if, what if this really happened, and, and how terrifying that, that nightmare would be. Like, what if, Freddie, Mer- the the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. What if you could be killed in your dreams? You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What if you uh, picked up a hitchhiker who uh, was part of a family of cannibals? Wake and Fright, the question is, what if you were forced to hang out with Australian people for an entire day? And that is a terrifying thought. I am looking, I gotta say, I still want to see Tenet, even though I'm sure it's bad. I want to check it out. Uh, I I think the interesting thing about Nolan is that Nolan is it's very he is really the the director for our time because he is a figure where he is as he is like he is someone without a soul like his films are fully soulless and what he replaces soul with is uh, self manufactured puzzles like just what. It, I have no interest in people as such, but I do have uh, interest in in challenging myself to get out of narrative and conceptual boxes. And that very much is, like, that's what film is, that's what the internet is now. It is, we've sort of cast off any, we've cast off our bodies, and we've decided that, like, while we wait for oblivion, while we wait for individual death and for the death of our species, we're gonna basically do mental crossword puzzles. And that's what te- that's what Nolan movies are. That's what all of the arguments people decide to invest with emotion and meaning on, on online are. Yeah, because like, yeah, like complexity instead of depth. You know neither Godzilla nor King Kong will win, as I said in the other stream. They never 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 have won definitively win. I do like though that when they originally did King Kong versus Godzilla, there was the American version King Kong won and the Japanese version Godzilla won. They should do that again, that'd be funny. Although honestly, they would switch it now. At least in America. Like they would want Godzilla to win because like King Kong winning would be too uh, like imperialist or something. It's a myth? Oh, never mind. I never saw it. I'm not a big, I'm not a huge Godzilla guy. It's going to have a definitive winner. Interesting. Well, if it's not King Kong, then it's bullshit. I'm sorry. If it's not King Kong, I'm sorry. If it's not Godzilla, it's bullshit. Oh, the Godzilla King of the Monsters, the one they did a few years ago, is not good at all. Uh, no, Godzilla, come on. Godzilla beats King Kong. I don't care if you make King Kong bigger so that they can fight on even terms. King Kong gets his ass kicked.
uh, somebody asked about a, a relatively obscure movie from a few years ago, Standoff at Sparrow Creek. That is a movie that a lot of people should watch. People who are like freaking out about uh, QAnon and the Proud Boys, they should really watch that movie because it really does spell out how this actually works. How much of how much of what we think are these uh, like insurgent uh, reactionary militia movements are in fact being directed to some degree from the leadership positions by law enforcement. I mean, we just had that confirmed with the the Proud Boy leader who was arrested the day before uh, the the Capitol uh, breach with the just enough just just the, the right amount of uh, like I think uh, weapons uh, like magazines uh, rifle magazines to get arrested so that he couldn't go but all of his supporters went I mean if they're all if they're all informants I think people really need to ask themselves well what are we actually getting out of all of this drama and like are we really are we really fighting evil or are we uh, playing our part our necessary part in a public conflict that only serves to reinforce state power at every at every point The real right-wing threat is esoteric fascist, eco-fash. I, I don't, I gotta tell you, I don't think that's true. I don't think fash is a threat to anything. I think all of these things are components of one big post-fascist regime that is, it is empire in its death throes. It, 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 its violence comes home to police those within its borders who can no longer be bought off. But that's not a political, it's not a political contest. It is all of politics. It's not, the stakes aren't real because there is no alternative. Within the structure, within the points of conflict, the, uh, the emergence of, of an alternative is going to be, I hate to say it, orthogonal to everything else. There'll be a reconstruction board game? Okay, that sounds interesting. Wow. We really are just waiting around in the fucking... Uh, we are in Hell's Waiting Room, aren't we? Just like... No alternative. Nothing, nothing can be better. So we're going to imagine ways that things could be better in the future and the way things could have been better in the past to make the future not what it's going to be. And 
I'm part of that. I'm not blaming anybody for that. But I think that you have to understand the current political moment and culture in those contexts. And doing so, I think, robs a lot of the drama out of it and robs a lot of the urgency out of things that really aren't that important. Because... Politics is dead, but it will not stay dead. Because the things that have killed it, the things that have narconized us to politics, the things that have made it so that we can't be effective political actors, uh, are going away, are changing. Uh, the conditions that paralyze us are shifting very quick. And that is going to give us new avenues for, for political action that can't be predicted or extrapolated out from the present. And that's, I think, that's the thing, to, like, that's the thing to remember when you feel overwhelmed by this stuff. But I would like to play the Reconstruction board game, certainly. I, uh, I'm off, someone's asking sativa or indica. I'm not. I'm off weed right now. It's like I'm trying to recalibrate and and just start from scratch, like knowing where my body is, knowing what's real and it and what's been exacerbated by by chemicals. And I have used sativa because it gets me like on point, but I don't think I need that anymore. Uh, I'd be interested in the future to maybe try something uh, that like puts you in your body as opposed to makes you throw fall fly out of it. Meditation's going good. I've been meditating all week, twenty minutes or so a day, after having been off it for a while. It feels good. I'm gonna try to keep doing that. Okay, this is good. The AOC thing. I don't like talking about AOC because she is a she's a voodoo doll like she she's she exists to to uh to pour your frustrations and anxiety into one way or the other uh but the whole thing the whole trauma narrative that she's going with i don't the argument about like whether you whether it's real or not absolutely baffling that these are conversations people are having but i'd have to say that She's essentially acting like an influencer. Like that's the way to understand all this stuff. Like her talking about her trauma, and now they're gonna have like everyone talking about their trauma. She might think that this is like a political play that's going to help her side versus the Republicans. But that's only here. That's only at the top of her reasoning. The real reason she's doing this is because she's she is a millennial, and that's what you do. She's a celebrity, she is an influence. What is a member of Congress, even a member of the squad, which is a tiny fraction of a fully neoliberal Democratic Party caucus, what can you really do? Especially since there's no popular movement that you can direct or coordinate with to put pressure anywhere. You, you stream yourself. You stream yourself. What am I doing? I'm streaming myself. She's streaming herself. You post. She's a poster. She's an influencer. That's what we all are. People get mad at her for it, and that's beside the point. People want to defend it and say that it's like a politically effective. That is also not true. 
it is what you do instead of politics because politics is dead. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of, of this idea that that everything, is, that all trauma needs to be fetishized uh, and wept and used and, and, and that because it, it rests on this assumption that that other people are going to respond to your narrative the way you want them to. And that's just not true, which is why it ends up just being self-indulgence and, and self-promotion. But again, that's all it can be. Getting mad at any politician at this point is like getting mad at the weather. I don't want to talk about I don't know, I'm done talking about Hansen. Boring topic. I never went to Kings Island when I lived in Cincinnati. Never been a huge theme park guy because the lines never were never good. Hated that. Hated going. Hated waiting in line. Somebody says, thoughts on the rise of incest porn. I was thinking the other day that, because I, I just rewatched Under the Silver Lake, which is, a, I think, a really great and underrated movie that is extremely relevant to the current moment in a way that is actually interesting and provocative as opposed to just being lazily, uh, you know... Like, it's it, you watch a movie like that, and then you watch movies that are, like, clearly going off of, you know, Twitter topics and, and, and trending... Uh, uh, talking points and and uh, and are clear and are like written by and for people who are online all day. Uh, it's 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 night and day. Like that, there's no pandering in that movie, but it very much speaks to the moment at a deeper like uh, like basal level. Uh, and I was just thinking about how the whole story of that movie is about a downwardly mobile middle class white guy who literally cannot get a girl i mean not just because he's a psycho i mean he is a psychopath and that's the whole part of it like it's about misogyny in him in many ways but he can't get a girl because the girls are all with rich guys because everyone's just trying to survive and uh none of no no none of the women his age uh the guys don't have any money and incest porn is sort of the same thing like the girls your age are with your dad, so you have to have sex with your stepmom. Oh, 
also for incels specifically who make up a big portion of pornography's uh, base users uh, the another lure of uh, step step pornography is that you know porn par porn fantasies are they have to be to some degree plausible or attainable to really tantalize and so if you're talking about people who really don't go outside the home at all uh, even even like the fantasy of workplace sex is a bridge too far so the only person you could realistically fantasize about is someone who you can fuck without leaving your house Somebody, uh, I think, to wrap it up, the last thing, someone had a long thing in chat just now saying that we're a schizophrenic society because of the divide between our digital and uh, real selves. And I think that's true, but I think it, it even goes deeper than that because that is only a proxy for the greater, the deeper divide in the modern self uh, between the... Um, between the chronologically grounded self, i.e. the body in space, and the uh, mental mind self that is, a, that is unbounded by space or time. And the internet is, is more than anything a tool to allow us to spend time in our bodies that is not processed chronologically, and therefore cannot accrue meaning because meaning must adhere to experience. And there is no experience to online. Like, it is a pseudo-experience. Like, you get mad, and you get angry, and you get horny, and you get uh, scared, but it's essentially your brain tricking you into feeling those feelings. That is, and so, where you, what you uh, assign the cause of those feelings is also made up by your brain. Which is harder to do when the source of your emotional responses is a material interaction that occurs in a chronological space-time. I was pretty old when I really got into the internet, and I think that's one of the reasons that... Uh, one of the reasons that it wore off for me is because the, the it was never as satisfying, I think, as it is for younger people because uh, the contrast between a life that I had had or I, was, I imagine I could have had instead of it was greater. Whereas I think for younger people, the internet is taken for granted. But 
that doesn't mean that a crack up is not inevitable. I think that we're in the process of a full social uh, breakdown, but not that doesn't necessarily mean the apocalypse or the end of anything. It means people are getting to their end of their particular ropes. The, the coping mechanisms we've, me we've created, they have a fuse. They don't last forever. There's only so much dopamine you can get from a pseudo-existence. And it's different for people. Like, some people, it's longer than others. But everybody gets to a point. And uh, I think we're all getting there. And I think one of the big reasons that we've had this big uh, explosion in political hysteria in the last year is because of fucking COVID. And it's weird how we've normalized COVID so much that we forget that there's no way that I anyway can imagine things like QAnon occurring, the fucking capital breach occurring, without a context where our coping mechanisms have been radically reduced. The things we have had historically in this country to allow us vent, to allow us to compensate for the lack within our lives are, are, are sucked in. And if that persists, it's only going to get weirder. I think we're in for weird, weird, weird times. Uh, but weird times are when, when new things emerge, by definition. And that's something that, it's obviously scary, but to me it's less scary than the narrative that a lot of people have internalized of, total social uh, fixedness of, of the idea that these categories are un, uh, uh, unchallengeable. And people have said that I say that, but I just mean that, that looking through the current structures, that is the conclusion to draw. But that doesn't mean it's the correct conclusion. Last movie, somebody says Joker was the last movie they saw in theaters. The last movie I saw in theater was Uncut Gems, which we talked about a little bit on the last episode about Trump movies, but I'd like to just end here talking about how uh, you could, I couldn't really have picked a more perfect film because that movie is about the, uh, the death drive of American society. I mean, I know it's specifically about, you know, Judaism and stuff and like Jewish experience but as a, it is part of a broader uh, a broader analysis of uh, of a people Americans who believe themselves to be eternal beings but who have physical bodies and who can't reconcile those two things other than by subconsciously seeking death on their preferred terms. Like the beginning of the movie, he's getting the rectal exam, and it's actually kind of up in the air, and I actually thought he was going to get a call halfway through that he had cancer. And then he gets the, the, the call, oh, I don't have cancer. Yet, oh, he doesn't have it now. That doesn't mean in five years he's not going to have it. 
That doesn't mean in 10 he's not going to get it. And he even talks about his family history. He's probably going to get it. Does he want that? Does he want to wait around to fucking get chemo and, and get sick? The thing that everybody watches their family members go through with horror? Or do you die on your own terms going out on top? And that is why that movie has a happy ending. He got what he wanted. But in real life, you can't do that. And one of the reasons we're cracking up is that it's a society of Howie Ratner's trying to dictate their end, but you can't know. You can't do it. Because you set it up and it doesn't come. Because you're not, you're not, you don't want to die in your conscious mind. And then it doesn't happen. And then you have to keep doing it. You keep doing the same thing. And it just, it drives you into, into, into uh, madness. And it's driving us all into madness. And, like, it's especially funny seeing that movie right at the moment where, like, Bernie looked like he might win, you know, before COVID happened. It's like, oh, if you could pick a moment, wouldn't that have been the moment? But you don't get to pick the moment. You don't get to be Howie Ratner. He is, he is a, a classic uh, hero, in the sense that he he fucking he saw the moment, even though he didn't know he was seeking it, and he 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 got his end. He got an end on his own terms. All right, uh, that's good. I felt nice. This is fun. I like this. It's uh. The stakes are lower. I can uh, talk things out without feeling like I have nowhere else to put things. Uh, but so next Wednesday, and I'll tweet this after I'm done, uh, we will talk about the first chapter of Eric Foner's Reconstruction. As I said, if you don't read it, that's fine. We'll talk about it enough that you'll get the gist. And if it sounds interesting, pick it up. Bye-bye.